get into God's word this morning. Again, John chapter 6. This morning we're going to, Lord willing, look at the first 15 verses here of the 6th chapter of John. Last week, remember, in John 5, we saw the Lord addressing those uh, Pharisees and scribes that took issue with him healing a man on the Sabbath. He talked to them about his deity. He talked to them about him being the Son of God, the Messiah. And then last week, we saw him pointing them to the witnesses of who he claimed to be. And he said, you know what, I, I could claim it myself, but you won't receive that. Uh, just because as in a court of law, your witness concerning yourself is not going to be received. So he pointed them to witnesses that were valid of who he was. He pointed them to John the Baptist, who they recognized as a prophet of God. And indeed, the fact that John bore witness to him that he was the Messiah. And then he pointed them to his works that were evidences that he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of scripture, those things that were written beforehand that the Messiah would do. And then he pointed them to the word of God that bore witness that he was the Messiah through prophetic utterance that was given. And then he pointed them to the greatest witness, the father himself, who even at his baptism had said, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. So he pointed them to those witnesses. Now this morning we see the Lord back up in the Galilee region. And boy, in John, we've just seen the Lord bouncing back and forth from uh, Judea and Jerusalem back up to Galilee. And we see that the Lord was continually, again, being led by the Father, ministering to those around him. So we see him back up in Galilee this morning. From the other gospels, we know that he had crossed the Sea of Galilee even to get away from the multitudes to be able to find time to rest. And this morning, we're going to see that the multitudes, they followed him. And as they followed him, he didn't say, get out of here, I need to rest. But instead, we'll see this morning the Lord teaching them. We'll see the Lord having compassion on them. We'll see the Lord, again, being long-suffering with them because the bulk of the people, and John's uh, sixth chapter here really brings out the fact that most of the people were following for carnal reasons, for fleshly reasons, to get temporary needs met, to have temporary healings, to get their bellies filled. And in this chapter, the Lord calls them out on that. In fact, at the end of this chapter, we see many people, they leave uh, because the Lord basically uh, draws a line in the sand. Why are you here? Yet, despite the fact they were there for, you know what, not to seek after him, he ministers to them, and in this account this morning, we see this account all for the Gospels. Uh, after feeding them, he has compassion on them upon compassion and knowing that they were hungry. And he, we'll see this morning him asking Philip, how can we feed all these guys? And uh, you know what? He says, well, we have 200 denarii. Which is that? And then we'll see his brother say, hey, there's a lad here, and he has uh, five barley loaves and two fish. And we'll see the Lord taking this small gift from this boy and feeding this massive crowd. And in fact, the title of the message is Small Gifts in God's Big Hands. And so in this passage, we'll see a lot of practical application, a lot of, you know, a doctrine for us and so forth. So that's where we've been and where we're going. Let's read the text together. We're going to read all 15 verses. And then we'll just go through this verse by verse and hopefully leave here built up in the Lord Jesus. So... It says here, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. 
And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down, and there is much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet of whom is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So notice, after these things, Jesus goes over the sea. And we kind of already touched on after what things in the book of John. Again, in Jerusalem there, healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, teaching and rebuking and even correcting the Pharisees, pointing the four witnesses that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet we look at the other Gospels and we see there were a whole lot of other things that went on as well. Now, that's not the Gospels contradicting one another, but it's the Gospels complementing one another. We need to know on top of that, there are so many other things that the Lord did during his ministry that aren't even recorded in the Scripture. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, and we've touched on this, I think, once before in the book of John so far in our study, but in John 21, 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did. If they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Amen. I mean, think about that. Think about, you know, enough books to fill this room. You know, the cubic feet in this room, not just the square feet on the floor, but the cubic feet of this room, that would be a lot of books. In fact, I don't even know if you could read through that many books in your lifetime. And John's making a declaration that, you know, if all the things were written that Jesus did, not even the world would be able to contain all the books. And when he's talking about the things that Jesus did, he's talking about the things that Jesus did under the glory of the Father. Because really everything that Jesus did was unto the glory of the Father. And Jesus, we know, he always did the will of the Father, and absolutely he never sinned. And think about this, and, and we've touched on this a little bit before. You know, we talk about Jesus never sinning. It's not just Jesus not doing what was prohibited by the law, but it was Jesus always doing what the will of the Father is. You know, it's one thing not to steal. It's one thing not to lie. But it's another thing to love your neighbor as yourself, to go that extra mile. And Jesus said everything he did was to the glory of the Father. There's so much that he did. There's so much that he does. Think about it. There was so much that he did that we don't know. There's so much that he does that we're not even aware of. 
And I really think one of our prayers should be, Lord, open up my eyes that I can see more of your might and your power and your provision. The more we know of him, the more that we know what he does, the more praise will come forth from our life. And listen, we've been called to be a worshipful and a, and a praise giving to God people. First uh, Chronicles 16.9, it says, sing to him, sing praise to him, talk of all his wondrous works. And the more we know of his wondrous works, the more we can talk of his wonderful works. And listen, the more we talk of his wonderful works, the more we're going to praise him for his wonderful works. And you're going to find nothing but joy in that. You're going to find nothing but, again, uh, you know what, uh, encouragement in your heart. The more our eyes are upon him, the more, the more that we realize, listen, the reason we got lights on here ultimately is the hand of God. You know, the reason we could come and gather together here this morning is the hand of God. What God is here, what's giving breath in our lungs, is holding all this together, is the hand of God. And, and when we begin to realize that, you know what, when little things come up, you know what, they don't look so big when we realize how big and awesome our God is and he's sustaining us and he's given us this day and by his will he'll give us tomorrow as well. So again, after these sayings, he goes over the Sea of Galilee and again, we know from Mark's gospel, he was going over the Sea of Galilee to rest. Again, he had been ministering to a great multitude on one side of the sea, so he's wanted to get away from them to go to the other side. Let's read this in Mark's gospel. Mark 6.30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourself to a desert place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a desert place in the boat by themselves. And what we see here is rest is a good thing, especially after one is labored, especially when, after one is labored, again, for the work of the Lord. Because it's one thing to go out and just to labor, and we know that that's taxing. But when you're laboring for the Lord, and that can even be in your day-to-day job. You know, in your day-to-day job, you should be laboring for the Lord. That day-to-day job really is part of the ministry that God has called you to. And when we're going to go out and we're going to labor spiritually as well as physically, listen, it's going to be a grind. It's going to take a toll at times outwardly. It's going to take a toll at times inwardly. But the good news is we have a place of rest We have somewhere where we can go to get refueled, somewhere we can go to get built up. And I love the fact with all the busyness of Jesus during his ministry on earth, and again, in the book of John, we've seen it. The Lord's here, then the Lord's there, and the Lord's taking some long journeys, most of them by foot. We see him, though, modeling going and getting rest. And we see when he would go and rest, it always centered around going and resting at the feet of the Father, and going and finding those times of prayer, finding those times of quiet before God Almighty. And we get so many promises in the scripture when we rest before him, when we wait on him, indeed, he will strengthen us. Maybe this morning you're weary. A lot of you guys look like you're awake this morning, but some of you are looking like you're, you're kind of weary. I don't know if it's, you know, you didn't get enough sleep or maybe you got earlier and you ate the pancakes and you're already getting your, you know, the carb, the carb hangover setting in. But listen, Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. And listen, it's one thing just to get physical rest. And that's a good thing to get a day off for that coveted vacation or whatever. But you want to get rest every day in the Lord. I mean, how are we going to go out and minister? And again, 
all those places that God has called you to be part of, that's just not to be there, but it's to represent the Lord. He wants us to be, you know, strengthened in him. We need to go in and get strengthened so that we can go out and be effective. And so this morning, if you're kind of worn down in your spirit, listen, there's an answer. And you don't have to wait, you know, to the middle of July for your vacation. You can go get renewed today. And we need to do that daily before the Lord. And the Lord's modeling it. They'd cross the sea to get away from the crowds to go try to find rest. So he says here, they go over the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And it's interesting, the Sea of Galilee, there's actually four names for it that we read about in the scriptures. And that might cause confusion when you're reading through the word, but there's really no need for that. Again, it's called the Sea of Galilee. That was the name of the region, the Galilean region. Uh, They were Galilean people. Again, we see here it's called the Sea of Tiberias. And it's called the Sea of Tiberias because Herod Antipas had his capital near to that. So that name is related to him and to the capital. We also know in some places it's called the Sea of Gennesaret. And there was a fertile plain northwest of the Sea of Galilee, so someone associated with that fertile plain. And then it's also called the Sea of Chinnereth, which means harp in Hebrew. And the Sea of Galilee, if you ever look at it on the map, it's shaped like a harp. Now, one thing you got to know about it, it, it's not a sea as we think of a sea. We think of a sea and we think of a salty, you know, larger body of water, uh, you know, not surrounded completely by land. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea, which again eventually connects to an ocean. Uh, it is actually a, 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 a fresh water, body of water, uh, you know, similar to one of our lakes around here. Uh, it would get fed from Mount Hermon. And so when you read in the scriptures about Mount Hermon and the waters from Mount Hermon, it is a very high altitude. It uh, can snow up on Mount Hermon and it would come down through the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee, then eventually back out down to the Dead Sea. So kind of keep that in mind. Just, just a little side note here as you're reading through the scriptures and you're like, well, which sea is this? It's all the same sea. It's just got different names. Just like some of you guys got different names, right? You got your, your regular name, your nickname, then you got, you know, the name that your buddies call you. And then, you know, when your mom's mad at you, she'd use your middle name, right? So notice verse two. Then a great multitude followed him. Again, and we know from the other gospel, they're fleeing this multitude to get rest. So they're following him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And in this, we begin to get into really the crux of the scripture or the crux of this chapter. It says they followed him because of what they saw him doing. And in many ways, listen, this was the new thing that was going on. Earlier, all these people were following John the Baptist, and yet the crowds behind or going after John the Baptist were dwindling. You know, that was the big thing that was going on. The prophet out there in the Judean wilderness, there was a buzz around him. There was an expectation. Now they've all moved on from there, and now they're following after Jesus. And they're following again because of what they saw. And as we go through this chapter, we see they were also following for what they could get. They were following for the healings. They were following for the practical provisions and so forth. Healings for themselves. No doubt physical healings for others. And when you think about just about everybody has at least one or two little physical conditions. And they say, hey, if I follow after him, I can get healing. Which, you know what? 
to, to a degree isn't bad, but the bad thing here is that it doesn't say they followed him for him. They followed him for what they could get from him. Again, it's here in the text of the chapter. It doesn't say they followed him to be with him. It doesn't say they followed him to get right with God. They were following for what they could get practically versus following what they needed spiritually, forgiveness to have a right relationship with the living God. We read later on in this chapter, and we'll probably get to this Lord willing next week, in John 6, 26, it says, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So they begin to follow, first of all, for what they see. Then they follow him next for what they get in their belly. Yet in all of it, it was never them following just because this is the Son of God and we need to get right with the living God. And listen, this gives us some answers today of why false teachers so flourish in the world today. Uh, I mean, some of these guys are so blatant in, in their exploits, uh, in the way they flaunt the riches and so forth. Uh, you know, these guys that dominate Christian television, these guys that, you know, drive around in Rolls Royces and live in these mansions, and it seems to go really unchecked in the body of Christ. Uh, they even see becoming more and more mainstream. You ever step back and you, you, you think, how in the world could this guy have a following? Am I the only one that thinks that? And, and you hear him talk and it, it's just, you know, there, there's, not a, there's not an anointing from God. You know, there's a lot of sweating and yelling and, you know, brow wiping and so forth. And, and you just look at it and, and you're like, how can this guy have such a huge following? Listen, the reason they get that is the, the appeal to people's flesh. They say, hey, come and listen, and heed to my gospel and you'll get rich. You'll have health, you'll have wealth and so forth. And there's so many people running around really not concerned about the condition of their soul. They're more concerned about their temporary condition here. And if someone comes along in the name of God and, you know, it says they represent God, uh, people are very vulnerable to follow after thinking that God's main purpose is just supplying all their temporary, not just needs, but their temporary wants and their temporary desires. And the scriptures talk about this. Second Peter 2, 3 is all about false teachers. It says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. And so they come coveting what you have, but they also come with covetous words to get people who are again cover coveting temporary not just needs but desires to come follow them because they say hey we have the formula to give you health we have the formula to give you wealth we have the formula to you know what make everything fall into place and you just have the best life and the perfect life ever right here on earth not according to what god's perfect plan would be which might be you being a martyr for the lord jesus christ but getting all of your temporary personal needs met all your wants and desires met and these people began to follow after Jesus because they said, man, he's healing, he's feeding. We can get all our temporary needs met right here. And listen, God is gracious in meeting our needs, but we have a greater need than temporary things. We need to get right with God Almighty. We need to get our sins washed. 
We need, we need to get a bridge between fallen man and almighty God so that we don't just have a temporary life here that's blessed, but we can know we have eternal life with God Almighty. Now notice verse 3 here. It says, And Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And I think where it says he sat with his disciples is huge. Uh, these people were following for what they could get. His disciples were following him for him to sit at his feet beautifully listen when you follow him for him we get him but we also get the assurance that he's going to meet our needs we see this throughout the scripture you know the passage we're familiar with matthew six thirty three. but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us or added unto you and that's what disciples do, right? Disciples seek first the kingdom of God. Disciples seek Jesus first. They want to sit at his feet. And he tells us in that, listen, as you seek me first, as you seek after me, you need to know I'm going to meet your needs. And in the scripture, he even talks about us casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us. So he gives us assurance he's going to meet our needs. And then he even tells us, listen, cast all your cares upon me, all those little things, knowing I care for you. But listen, we don't just come and follow him just to get our needs met. We follow him for him. We follow him for his own person. And you really see as we go through John chapter 6, a whittling away of the groups that were there just to get something from him temporary versus those that recognize this is the Messiah. This is God Almighty. I want to sit at his feet eternally. And later on, in fact, in the, jo- in the chapter after the Lord talks about, you know what, uh, eating of his body and drinking of his blood, which was metaphorically speaking, you know, you got to come and you got to follow me and put faith in me. It says, from that time in John uh, six sixty six, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So all these other people, they leave when the Lord says, I'm not here to meet your, just to meet your physical needs. He, he, he draws a line in the sand. And yet there was 12. They said, we don't have anywhere to go. You're the son of the living God. You have the words of life. And this, so that's, the, that's the difference between a disciple and someone that just you know, it comes to the Lord when, when they have a, a, a physical need or they just think God is there to make their life as, you know, most comfortable as it can and to give them all of their wants and their desires. Jesus said that he came to establish an internal kingdom, not, not a temporary one. And real disciples, again, first and foremost, they want to sit at his feet. I mean, even think about it. When you came to the Lord, wasn't it because you wanted to sit at his feet with him forever in heaven versus going to hell forever? I mean, a lot of people come to Christ because they know they're sinners. And they're like, I don't want to go to hell. Well, you know, when you think about heaven, oh, what will heaven be like? Heaven really is him. (laughs) Heaven is spending eternity with him. And, you know, people write these books of all the stuff, all the stuff that's going to go on to heaven so that, you know, it, oh, I'm not bored about, or, you know, I don't get discouraged about going to heaven. Listen, heaven's going to be being with God who give you breath in your lungs, who, who every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights above. But it's not, you know, what the gifts, it's him himself. And disciples come to him for him. 
They say, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm going to die. I recognize I'm, you know, going to be judged. But I want to follow the Lord. I want him. Uh, talking to, you know, at some of the deacons the other day about a fellow that both, you know, that, that we know who the gospel's been shared with this guy by multiple people. And he even acknowledges a sinner. But then he says, but I, I'm not afraid to go to hell. In fact, you know what? I, I'm not, I don't fear hell at all. And and uh, thinking, well, that's very foolish. But ultimately, you know what he's doing, and he's just being more honest than than everybody who doesn't put faith in Jesus. And he's come around the church at different times and with different needs, and and we've even helped meet certain needs that he has. And his idea is, I just want God to meet my temporary needs here. I want to live a really good life here. Uh, but I'm not interested, you know what, in, in heaven, I'm comfortable with the idea of going to hell. And really everyone that is going to be in hell, they really have the exact same mentality. They're saying, we don't want you. We, we're, we're fine over here. You know, yeah, we want our needs met. And really everyone running around, they're, they're, for the most part, they're trying to strive and have a better life. And you know what, this rat race that we're in. And, and God is even bestowing blessings upon them. But instead of letting his kindness lead them to repentance, they're in a place where they're saying, I don't want you. I just want what I can get from you. But disciples want him. I mean, disciples want a real relationship with God Almighty. Hopefully, as a church, we're gathered together here today, first and foremost, for him, to worship him, to learn of him and his word, to pray to him, to even fellowship and break bread around him and beautifully listen disciples have a place at his feet 24 7 we can come to him anytime and we would be wise to follow the example of the disciples here on an ongoing basis it says where you know his disciples sat with him i think of mary and martha there in luke 10 and martha was busy with much and mary was sitting at his feet and the lord told martha when she complained about mary she's chosen the better thing And what she is doing won't be taken away from her. Now notice verse 4. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now again, the Passover was near, and that meant Jesus would be going back down to Jerusalem because the Lord honored all the feasts. He kept the law. And Passover was one of the feasts that the Israeli men needed to go to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate. And so Jesus was going again down to Passover. Eventually, he would fulfill Passover. Again, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But the crowd knew that he would be leaving going to Passover. So for them, there was all more of an urgency, again, to go seek after him, to find those, you know, temporary needs met so they're pressing towards them this isn't just thrown in there like well why do why is that put in here like a footnote no it tells us that they knew that jesus was going to leave soon and so it was very urgent that they would go seek after him to try to get their needs met really though if they were in a place where they were wanting to honor god they would be going down to jerusalem as well to keep passover but many of them weren't many of them you know kind of showed up uh at the service but it was to get, again, what they felt they needed or to try to get their desires met. But ultimately, they didn't have a heart of obedience. Jesus had a heart of obedience. He obeyed the Father at every turn. And he was going to be leaving 
And so they said, we got to get on it. Now, we also, though, can glean, I, I, I know that, again, and, and you see it through the chapter, their motives weren't right, but one thing we can learn from them is they were at least seizing the opportunity. At least they recognized, hey, he's going to be gone, so we need to seize the opportunity today. And I think one thing we can take from that is that we're called to redeem the time today. Our time is short. And so we want to be seeking him today, but we want to be seeking him with the right motives. Now, beautifully here, listen, despite their motives, Jesus was absolutely concerned for them. He looked up and he saw a great multitude coming. And we don't read next that he said, hey, guys, we got to go hide because we need to rest. You know, it wasn't giving them the old slip. You know, Jesus didn't do that. Uh, despite their motives, he was concerned about their needs. It wasn't that he was going to give them, again, all of their desires, but he was concerned about their needs despite their motives. And listen, this is something where we need to step back. And instead of trying to villainize that crowd and saying, I'm with the other 12, you know, he said, where else can we go? We need to step back and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you're concerned about our needs, no matter what our motives are, because I've said it more than once from this pulpit, and I'll say it again. I don't know if there's anything that we ever do that our motives are 100% pure. Can we really say that? Where we're 100% sold out to the Lord, this is solely and fully done to the glory of God. You know what? Are we trying to get a little bit of glory for ourselves? In fact, if 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 you hear that and even say, oh, that's not me, most likely you're worse than anyone else in the room. Serious. It's funny, but it's true. If you remind me, it goes, well, that's not me. I, my motives are pure. There's some, there's some issues going on there. there. There's some blinders going on there. And yet, yet the Lord had compassion on them. And beautifully, you know, we read in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good alike. And he does this in wanting to show us kindness, as it says in Romans 2, 4, that his kindness and his goodness would lead us to repentance. So he sees them coming and he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And Philip was from Bethesda, which was a nearby village. So he would be familiar with the lay of the land. He would know where the shops are and so forth. So he turns to Philip practically and asks him this question. But he also turns to Philip and asks him this because we read in verse six, he's testing him. It says, but this he said to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And see, not only did the Lord knew what he would do, he also knew what Philip would say because as Isaiah 46.10 says, he declares the end from the beginning. He knows all things. There's nothing that, that, that the Lord does not know uh, that's going to happen. He's God Almighty. But here's the thing. Philip didn't know. Philip didn't know what the Lord was going to do. And so he was testing him. And the test would reveal much to Philip about himself, as well as about the Lord. Just like when you were at school and you would take, you know, at a history test, you would get, you know, your test graded and it would show you how much you know about history or how much you don't know about it or how much you paid attention and studied or how much you, you know, it sloughed off and, you know, it messed around the whole time. And we got to know that as the Lord's testing Philip here, that there's going to be times when God tests us. The Bible talks about trials. The Bible talks about temptations. It talks about testings. And that's absolutely what they are. God brings those things not only to grow us, 
but to show us where we are, where our faith really is. He also brings those things to show us his faithfulness and hopes that we would grow in our trust with him. Are you going through a trial this morning? You need to know that, again, it's not by chance that that's happening. God's allowing that to happen. And he's allowing it to happen in part to show you things about yourself and to show you things about him. And these things are going to happen. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, notice here, though it is tested, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says your faith is going to be tested. And the hope would be that it's found to the glory of God Almighty. You want to know who you really are? You're going to find out who you really are, how, you know, the measure of your faith when you go through trials. And when you go through those trials, you want to step back and you want to recognize God's allowing this testing and trial to grow me. So Lord, show me, Lord, show me where I fall short. Show me where I need to grow. And listen, the best thing to do is step back and say, Lord, in this fiery trial, come burn away what needs to be burned away. Come do a work in me. Because God wants to work a good work through those trials that he brings along. Notice verse 7 here. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. So 200 denarii would be about 200 you know, uh, 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 days uh, wage uh, you know, collected there. And Philip says, there's no way... That that's how much money we have, and there's no way that that's enough to, to feed all these people. We'll read it's 5,000 men. Most commentators, most historians say the wives were there and the kids, so you probably have at least 25,000 people. Uh, listen, these families were a lot bigger than they are today, so this might have been up more 35, 40, 45,000 people. And the Lord asked Philip, and immediately, though, his mind goes to the natural, his mind goes to, you know, the money he has. A better answer would have been, well, listen, Lord, with you, all things are possible. You're the Messiah, uh, 200 denarii. Uh, it could have been worse, though, because in some of the other gospels, we read that some of the disciples said, Lord, just send them away. Who cares? You know, at least Philip's like, hey, 200 denarii here. At least he's in the middle ground. Uh, but listen, the Lord, this is quite, you know, from, from again, a natural standpoint, this looks impossible. Here's thousands of people. The Lord's wanting them fed. Again, so it's a call of ministry upon them. And, and, and they're looking and they're like, we don't have the means. And really, if you get down to it, all the ministry God's called us to in of ourselves, we don't have the means. Just sometimes we're stupid enough to think we do have the means. But, but we don't. Listen, he, he's the one that gives us the means. He's the one that gives us his word. He's the one that gives us, you know what, spiritual gifts He's the one that, that supplies the anointing. He's the one that, again, brings forth the growth and everything else. And, and we would be wise to step back in all things, not to look first at our, at our natural provisions, but to look to him. In, in the ministry over the years, there's been times where it's like naturally, listen, we, we have all this covered. We have the workers, we have the money and everything else. Let's go do it. But, it, it, you know, you got going. It's like God's not in this. And it doesn't matter if you have all that stuff. If God's not in it, it it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, uh, equate diddling a squat. 
But there's been other times like we don't have the workers, we don't have the finances, but there's a call and all of a sudden, listen, God's in the, the wind's in the sail. We don't know where the sail came from, but we're moving right now. And we're really foolish when we think, oh, we have all the means to push God out of the equation or to say, well, we, we you know, we, we don't have the means and, and God's not capable. We need to look to him at every single turn. And then again, knowing all these things, he's going to build up our faith. Now notice verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So again, in all this crowd, uh, they find this, this lad, this young man here, five loaves and two fish, what are they among so many? And you think about this, you know, practically again, what are they among so many? That, that's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, but in God's eyes, listen, this was huge. And uh, I think oftentimes we foolishly think, I just have a few talents. Uh, you know, my gifts are small and they're very insignificant. What are they amongst so many? And instead of just taking those and offering them unto the Lord as he's called us to, we say, oh, they're, what are they? And so we just take them and, and, you know, we let them squander or we bury them or we just spend them on other things. And listen, these things weren't so small amongst so many. These were huge in the hands of God. Because when you take small gifts and you put them in the hands of God Almighty, they are mighty. They are powerful. Uh, you know, you think about the widow there in, in, in Mark 12, 41. And we'll just read it through 44. You talk about a small gift. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw the people put money into their treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which made a quandrous. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in, not out of, out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And the Lord take, took note of that. And he said, that small gift is bigger than all that they gave because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. And it wasn't just huge to God in her heart, but it's huge to God in that he could take five barley loaves and two fish and he can leave tw- feed 25,000 men plus their families and have 12 baskets left over. Listen, it's, God's not limited. God's, God, God, listen, so many times... The thing that limits the Lord, and nothing can limit him, but I would say the thing that can limit God and moving in our lives and our ministry is our lack of faith. Because we'll put faith again to, how much do we have over here? 200 denarii worth of bread or five loaves and two fish, but God's greater than this. Are we going to put our faith in that or put our faith in him? Listen, there are several places where the Lord went, and it says he didn't do many miracles there, not because of him, but because of their lack of faith. And again, most of us, you know, really all of us, what are our gifts really, comparatively? It's a world of seven, they tell us seven billion people. I don't know who's counting that. Uh, Some people say that's inflated, there's way less. Other people say there's way more. How do they know? I don't know. But but seven billion people, we'll just go with that. You know, what what are we really? You know, we're, we're a speck of dust on the map, you know, even gathered, even you take, oh, you know, all the mega church over there. They run 2,000 people. What is that compared to 7 billion? It's, it's really nothing. And, and then you start looking at our own little lives and, you know, a, a gift, a spiritual gift or two and our little income and so forth. And God says, listen, honor me in these things. And how many times have we step back and we say, listen, in the, in the 
grand scheme of all this, what is my little gift? What is my little offering? You know, how that's, how is that going to have help at all? Well, listen, first of all, when you give that of a joyful and chillful heart, God is honored. God is worshiped. God is praised. And that's a huge thing, especially in a world where there's so many that aren't honoring him, that aren't praising him, that don't say thank you, that don't ask God to bless their food or anything else. It pleases God's heart and it honors the Lord. It brings him glory to him. And then on top of that, when you take small things and put it in God's hands, he can do big things with it. And there's big things that he's doing that we won't even be aware of until we see him in glory where he says, listen, I took that small gift that you faithfully gave week after week after week, and this is how I use it to my glory and to my honor and my praise. But if we just take that and we bury it, we're not even putting it in his hands. Where's our faith then? We're looking at it wrong. You know, people that would say, well, I just have the gift of helps. And, you know, I work this nine to five job. What can I really do? Nothing. So I'm just going to sit on it. Boy, if I was called to the mission field and if I had the preaching ability of some famous evangelist, boy, I'd be out there, you know, I'd be out there going for it. But since it's just this, you know, what is it? And the truth is that guy's gift is as small as your gift. It was just given by God in the first place, was it not? What are they amongst so many? Listen, they were huge in the hands of God. Little side note there, one question I have is, why is this kid the only one who came with lunch? You ever think about that? He's the only one who came prepared. It's funny, but there's a truth here. Listen, when you show up on time, when you show up prepared, God, you know what? You can be a lot more useful in the Father's hands. I remember a friend of mine years ago, he got back from the mission field, and he was given an opportunity to go speak in front of a group. And I said, well, what's your message? Have you prepared it? What are you going to share? He's like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to go and wing it, whatever comes to my mind. And I go, I don't think that's biblical. The Bible talks about studying to show yourself approved. He's like, but it also says God will give you the words in that time. And I said, yeah, he's talking about when you're dragged before a court, you're going to a Bible study, not to a court of law. And he got there and about two minutes in, he ran out of things to say. It's true, show up prepared. Showed up, prayed up, showed up, studied up. This guy showed up, this little boy showed up with lunch. He showed up prepared. He showed up practically prepared. And the father was able to use it in a greater way. Verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And then verse 11, Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Something that a lot of people miss here that's huge. You know, we talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit and we, you know, you, you, there's like the sign gifts of tongues and healings, interpretation, interpret, interpretation of tongues and miracles and so forth. And then you got gifts like uh, preaching and evangelism and teaching. Uh, but there's also gifts like helps. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28, it talks about gifts of administration. And you don't hear administration talked about a whole lot. Administration means management and oversight to help bring order. And do you know if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see every one of those spiritual gifts in play. And you realize right here, you see Jesus using the gift of administration. You see the Lord bringing order. Hey, have everyone sit down. In Mark's gospel in chapter 6, it says he seated them in groups of 100 and groups of 50. And then we read in verse 11, he took the food, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the people. This is huge. 
This is a picture of one of those small gifts. Oh, I just have the gift of administration. But listen, when that's exercised with a group of 25,000 plus people, boy, it really is great in the hand of God Almighty. God's a God of order. And we see Jesus using that gift right here. I also find it funny too. I, I grew up Pentecostal. I believe fully in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But never do I remember growing up when someone would pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they lay hands on them and say, oh, Lord, we ask for the gift of administration for them right now. You know, it's always, you know, let's go with tongues, the least of the gifts. You know, and how about going up the gift of administration? No, they never did that. Just a little side note thought I had here. Verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And notice here, before the Lord begins to distribute and what to you, he gives thanks. He gives thanks for the little. Five barley loaves and two fish. He doesn't complain. You don't see the Lord saying to the Father, Father, we've dragged us out here and there's all these people. And Father, we don't have enough food. <laughs> Father, what are you going to do? No, he takes the little and he gives thanks. Again, Mark's gospel in, the, in, in 641, it says he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. No doubt he thanked the Father for the little provision there. Thank you, Father, for these five loaves and these two fish. And no doubt he thanked the Lord for the little lad who came prepared, who was willing to give up of his five loaves and his two fish. Listen, so Life is so much better when you're thankful for the little versus, you know what, complaining about not having the much. You know, not long ago, we went through Thessalonians, and we, we hit back on this. It seemed like every study, First Thessalonians 5, 18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and everything give thanks. Give thanks if there's 25,000 there and you, you have an abundance of loaves and fish to feed them all. Or give thanks if there's 25,000 there plus their families and you have five barley loaves and two fish and everything. Give thanks. Learning to be content, listen, with what we have and godliness, it's a glorious thing versus what we don't have. And so the Lord gives thanks and then he takes that little and he doesn't say, okay, well, I'm the Messiah. I got to eat lunch. You guys go fend for yourself. No, he gives thanks and he begins to break that bread and he begins to distribute it. And that little is turned into a lot. And it's amazing how God will stretch a little when we first give thanks and then give out of not our abundance, but instead out of our poverty. And you see this throughout the scripture. You see this in the church of, of Philippi. If you read Philippians 4, uh, 14 through 20, and then Paul commends them in 1 Corinthians as well. He says, I have these needs, but you're the only church in Macedonia that gave to me. And it's beautiful because he talks about uh, great abundance coming out of that. In verse 18 of Philippians 4, he says, I have all and I abound and I am full. And then in verse 19, it says, God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's Paul on the mission field. The poorest church is the only church that gives. And out of that little gift, it's enough to fully supply Paul's ministry. So he's abounding, he's full. And then on top of that, they don't lose out, but God supplies all their need according to his riches and glory. Now listen, this isn't being preached to manipulate, you know what, poor people and to step on their throat 
This is being preached because it's the word of God and God's called us to be a people who walk by faith and trust in him. Can we say amen to that? So they went from a little, giving thanks and stepping out of faith, and it turned into an abundance. In fact, as much as they wanted, in fact, if you get into the Greek there where it talks about wanted, uh, it, it, it implies the word gluttony, where not only did they eat, but they were stuffed. It was like a trip to the hometown buffet, you know, but, but with good food. You know, they're, they're just, they're stuffed here. <laughs> Verse 12. So when they were filled, they said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so nothing that is lost. And notice here, being wasteful is not a godly virtue. The Lord's practicing good stewardship here. You know, take this so that nothing's lost. And let's keep that in mind. Uh, Good stewardship uh, will always, you know what, translate into being wise stewards of the earth, wise stewards of our food and finances and so forth. Uh, it will put forth a good witness even to people that worship the earth. And, and we never want to move into that. But as we're good stewards, you know, with things, and, and you know, that, that's why you can do things like, you know, the, the state of California charges us five cents if we buy a bottle of water or can, but there's nowhere to recycle that in town. Kind of seems like a, a scam, wouldn't you agree? But as a church, we've tried to say, well, let's, let's recycle that, and then we can use it towards our, you know what, open arms ministry. And we got a faithful brother in the church that collects that once a week and takes that in, and you know what, he probably needs a little help in that. If anyone else wants to help in that, maybe that's a small gift you can come help in. And so I didn't want to hear that. You know, I've been thinking about that. There's your prophetic confirmation. Verse 13 here. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by all those who had eaten. And it's just true. Listen, you hear this phrase all the time, but it's just so true. You can never outgive God. This little boy brings these five loaves, these two barley fish, the faith of a child. And there's no doubt that there's not one step along the way that he regretted it. Putting that in the hands of the Lord the Lord giving thanks, the Lord multiplying that, and then the Lord, again, abundantly giving back to him. And there's no doubt that it wasn't given back to him so that, uh, you know, he would rejoice in that bread. But can you imagine the way this little boy's faith was impacted? The abundant lesson that he got. Listen, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So again, not out of necessity, you know, and it's not the old, hey, if you don't start giving, this ministry will fold. Listen, if the ministry's contingent on people giving, it should fold. Should people be giving? Absolutely. But they should be giving cheerfully, not grudgingly. And they should be giving as they're abounding in the Lord and their faith is abounding. But if it's a ministry of God, it's going to go no matter what. It might look different. It might look different down the road. But you know what? If God's in it, he's going to supply the need. He absolutely is. Verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And this refers back to Deuteronomy 18, 15. We've looked at this already in John. 
We looked at it multiple times where Moses talked about the Messiah. He prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Again, this was a reference to Jesus Christ, a prophet like me, and that Moses was a deliverer. But see, Jesus came to deliver us from sin. Moses just delivered the Israelites from Egypt. The Lord came to deliver us from sin. And here's these men recognizing this is the prophet. The problem was, they got this verse right. The problem was, is they did not look at this verse in the context of the totality of Scripture. It was good that they were referencing Deuteronomy, but they should have went back and referenced Genesis 3 as well. That yes, he came, he's come to the seed of the woman, and if they would have looked into it, they would have seen Mary was a virgin of high reputation, who got, you know, it was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us, born without a sin nature, But they would remember through the seed of the woman, the Savior would come. And yes, remember, the serpent's going to bruise his heel. But he's going to crush that serpent's head. And if they would have went to Isaiah 53, they would have read about him being pierced for our transgressions. And they would have stepped back and they would have said, he came to save us from our sins. Even if they would have just listened to his preaching, it was about saving them from their sins. And they would have rejoiced. But instead, they took the verse out of context. And they said, yeah, it's the prophet who's come here to set us up an earthly kingdom to conquer Rome. Because that's what we want. We want to be number one here on earth. Because verse 15 says, therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They were coming to make him king for earthly reasons. The disciples didn't even really fully get this, even though he talked to them about this over and over again until he rose from the dead. Listen, in the garden when he was being betrayed, when Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, He's doing that in part because he's wanting, he's trying to get a riot going. He's trying to move the Lord to go conquer Rome, to conquer, again, these religious zealots, to take his rightful place of king. And, and the Lord could have done that and been justified, but he had a greater plan to conquer our sin, to give us eternal life. And so the Lord slips away from them. Again, they want to force it by their hand. And whenever we're trying to force things by our hand, it's not good. We want things to move by his hand. And it wasn't time. It wasn't his time. And this wasn't his way. It's an exercise or it's a lesson of patience for us. God has a perfect timing and God has a perfect way. We want to learn, again, not to race ahead of him or not to lag behind him, but get the word of God before us and rest and be thankful in the day that we're in so again he departs from them which really is a picture of his deity i mean they're trying to force him it's a huge crowd and he departs right from them where does he go he goes kind of to where we started in the chapter to the mountain by himself alone and everywhere in scripture where we see him alone he's alone there with the father for fellowship as well as for for lack of a better word fuel to fuel up even his soul as Again, he was God, but he emptied himself. He was man. Never ceased being God, but he emptied himself and was a man. So for that fellowship and that fuel. Let's stand up and close in prayer here.
Well, Lord, we praise you today and we give you glory. We thank you for your word. Lord, a lot for us here to think about and consider. I just thank you that you're so good to us, God. I thank you that you are compassionate towards us. Lord, when we talk about giving, Lord, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you set the bar. You didn't say just go and give, but you gave your own life. Oh, Lord, I pray we'd rejoice in that this morning. Lord, in, in, in your life laid down and your life taken up, we thank you, Lord, for, again, the assurance of our salvation. And we thank you, God, for the time we have here, the gifts we have here. And I want to pray, God, we won't squander those things, but we'd be a people that walk by faith, that are cheerful givers, God. And Lord, as we close here, Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here. Lord, you know those that have called on your name and those who haven't. And listen, if you haven't called on the Lord, today is the day of salvation. The Lord is more interested in your eternal soul than anything else in your life. In fact, again, when he went to the cross, it was to to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin as transgressors of God's law, to do what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He laid down his life for us, and he took it back up that if any calls on his name, they'll be saved. And maybe all of us know him here today, but if you don't, listen, today's the day of salvation. Today, the Lord wants to wash you. Today, he wants to be your Lord. And if you're here today and you're saying, Steve, I want that. I want to call on Jesus. I'd love to lead you in a prayer that just affirms the faith in your heart that you can leave here knowing that you know that Jesus is your Lord. And so those of you that know the Lord, I want to invite you to pray with any of this morning that would be calling on his name. Let's just pray together. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I thank you for laying down your life for me. Taking it back up. Please forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. All the days of my life, I need you, God. Lord, we pray you bless those that have called on your name. We pray, God, that you'd water the seeds of the gospel that have been planted. And we pray, God, that you just continue to go before us as we lift our voices to you right now in praise and worship. Let's, let's close out by really lifting our voices to the Lord.
God bless you guys. There's food out there. Go and be blessed by that. Pray you have a wonderful day in the Lord Jesus.